You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To Dine For, the podcast. Today is a very different podcast, and I really hope it's something that you'll enjoy. The University of Notre Dame, which is my alma mater, specifically Professor Chris Hedlund, asked me to speak at her media entrepreneurship class to share the origin story of To Dine For, and also to explain how I pitch myself either in meetings for funding or to just pitch the program. And so I thought I would share the audio of that class in hopes that it might help someone today. Thank you for listening to To Dine For, and thank you for this opportunity to share the story of To Dine For and my why. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It seems like yesterday I, I was on the campus of Notre Dame, walking to the dining hall and trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and try to, you know, determine whether I'm, I'm, am I even in the right major uh, we're all sort of fumbling in the dark, especially in college. So I appreciate this opportunity to share my journey as a journalist and as a media entrepreneur. I never thought of myself that way until Chris reached out to me, but I guess I am. So I look forward to sharing my story and then opening it up to questions from you and really being a guide on your journey. I think we are all guides on each other's journey 
um, if we see life that way. So let me begin at the beginning. I was a senior at Notre Dame and I was planning to go to law school, right? My parents had spent the money on a Notre Dame education and I felt like it was the right thing to do. It was the practical thing to do. It was something that made sense. It was respectable. And I had taken all the appropriate courses. I had taken the LSAT and I applied to law school and I had gotten into four different law schools. And I decided on Notre Dame law and I sent in my deposit and that was that. That's what I was going to do. And there's, when you're a senior, there is such a pressure to have something to do when you graduate, right? It is an overwhelming pressure. And sometimes just being able to check the box feels instantly gratifying. And that's kind of where I was. But, you know, as my senior year went on and I had gotten into law school, I had this nagging feeling that I was in the wrong path. I was doing the wrong thing and that I actually did not want to become a lawyer. And it was a really terrible feeling. I knew I had, you know, wanted to be a journalist at some point in my my college career, but it seemed like going into television news seemed scary and it seemed sort of ridiculous. And the, the law path seemed reasonable, safe, and financially secure. And what I've learned is that financially secure is not the reason to make decisions, especially when you're between the ages of 20 and 25. And so I went down to the local TV station in South Bend WSBT, which is the CBS affiliate in South Bend, and I asked for a job. I had been interning there, so I knew I knew the news director, I knew the managing editor, and they they said to me, I told them the whole story. I said, listen, I, I got into Notre Dame Law, I have my money in there, but I really want to work for you. And at the time, the news director, Meg Sauer, said, you are ridiculous, go to law school. And she was kind of laughing about it. She's like, this is a dying industry you got to go to law school. And I said, I, I, I really thought long and hard about this. I really would like to work here. <laughs> she said, well, if you really want to work here, we'll find a place for you. And it was that moment that I had an instant peace come over me and I knew that I was on the right path. I started right out, out of Notre Dame as a local news reporter, which is one of probably of all the jobs that you could possibly get out of college is probably the least amount of money, okay? It, I think I was making less than $18,000 a year. And so in order to just survive, I worked at McCree's Deli. Does that still exist in Mishawaka, Indiana? Has anyone been to McCree's Deli? Uh, I was a waitress there, and then I was also worked at the mall at Casual Corner, which is really going to date me. It's really bad suits for women. But they were great for TV news because they were colorful. So I, I got a discount on suits. So those were the three jobs. And that was my existence when I was 22 years old, uh, 21, 22 years old, coming out of Notre Dame. And I was a local nightside reporter. And South Bend at the time actually had quite a bit of crime, which meant that I had a lot of work to do. And it was a absolutely fascinating job. Every single day, I was in a different pocket of Indiana or Michigan. We covered Northern Indiana and Southern Michigan, all the way up to Benton Harbor, Dewajak, St. Joe, into down into Carlisle. We were in Shipshawana. We were all through LaPorte, Indiana. And the stories were as varied. They would make your head spin. One day you'd be on a fire or a shooting or a stabbing. And then the other day you'd be on, a, a, I remember doing a story of a woman up in Berrien County 
whose house had over a hundred cats and she had died and they had to take all these cats out and then they were looking for people to adopt them. And, you know, it's just like one day you're on the Indiana toll road. The next day you're doing a story on politics, local politics. It was fascinating for someone who's curious, for someone who did not want to sit at a desk. That was my number one prerequisite for a job. I knew I didn't want to sit at a desk. I wanted to be out making things happen. It was the perfect job for me at that moment in time. So I worked in South Bend for almost two years and I literally did not have a day off. I was going from one job to another job to the other job. Some days, most days I worked two jobs in the same day, but I had, first of all, a desire to want to be good. I had a desire to want to be successful and I was willing to do what it took. I would say the number one thing, no matter what you're going to do, especially if you're going to be a media entrepreneur, a journalist or anything, is a deep desire to walk in the direction that you were walking, okay? After two years in South Bend, after literally more than 100 days on the Indiana Toll Road reporting on road conditions in winter, I got a job in Little Rock, Arkansas. And at the time, the way you got jobs in television news is you sent out VHS tapes around the country to other stations to see if they might want to hire you. And so I remember going to the post office with literally 20 VHS tapes a week, 20 VHS tapes a week. And the only callback that I got over months and months of looking for a job was Little Rock, Arkansas. And so I took it. And in January... My actual interview was on December 31st, 1999. And if you know anything about that moment in time, that was the entire world was worried about Y2K and that our world was actually going to end at the very end when it was 1231.99 when we were switching over to 2000. We know it did not end, but um, that was my interview in Little Rock. I got the job and I never looked back. It was phenomenal for me because I would only have to work one job and I had enough money to actually have my own apartment. I was in a roommate situation in South Bend. And now here I am on my own as a reporter. And that's my only job. It was fantastic. Little Rock, Arkansas and working in Arkansas was one of the best things that ever happened to me professionally. People say, oh, how was it like working in Arkansas? You're from south of Boston. How, you know, what was that culture you know, shift like, and it was, it was very difficult for me personally to be immersed in a culture that is so different from where I grew up, but it was such a time of learning. It was such a time of discovery. I had just enough knowledge about journalism to know what I was doing, but not to know what I was doing. So every day was a huge growth curve. We covered the entire state of Arkansas, I have been to every county in Arkansas, which I'm proud of because most Arkansans have never been to every single county. Um, I have seen the state through forest fires, through ice, through sleet, through devastating murders, through tornadoes, through every imaginable political story. I covered the Jimmy Lou Fisher, the governor running against um, Governor Huckabee, who at the time was, was trying to become governor. It was a It was a really fascinating time. And the thing about being a journalist is you are never bored. And if you have a curiosity and you like getting out and meeting people, it is really a tremendous field. So I worked in Arkansas 
for five years. I worked my way up from the weekend reporter, which worked Saturday and Sunday, to the five o'clock anchor. And then the evening anchor left for another city and they uh, promoted me to the five, the six, and the 10 o'clock anchor. So my time in Little Rock was all about growth and learning, not only about journalism, but the industry, uh, making friends. It was an amazing time in my 20s. I got the call of a lifetime to come anchor the morning news in New York City, really out of the blue. And that began another entire chapter when I moved to Manhattan. So on a Friday, I was working in Little Rock, Arkansas. And on a Monday morning, I was anchoring the news from the CBS Broadcast Center in New York City and to another time of tremendous growth. I anchored the morning news in New York City at CBS for four years um, the morning hours were very difficult on me. You had to get to work by uh, 3.34 in the morning. And, you know, I just thought to myself, if there's another shift, I want to take it. And I was offered the job to anchor the evening news in Chicago. So, again, an incredible opportunity. One of the greatest jobs in television to anchor the evening news in Chicago at WBBM. I took that with excitement and anchored the evening news in Chicago for another five years. So that puts me, I think, at 2015, I had just had a baby. My first, I got married in Chicago. I had a baby. And I was only a couple months back from maternity leave when I was taken into the boss's office and told that they were letting me go, that I was going to be fired. And it was a complete shock to me. I had no idea it was coming. They never said why. They just told me that I had to get all my things and leave the building. And so you can imagine how that must feel when you've spent your whole life kind of building a career, working extremely hard in cities you never imagined you'd live, working every imaginable holiday, mornings, weekends, um, what that experience was like of, of really being told to just leave the building. When I left that job, when I was let go, I went through a period of trying to determine whether I wanted to stay in the industry and what I wanted to do. And this, I always say, that transitions in life are when the good stuff happens. Okay. We always, we always think about, Hey, let's let the, the exciting stuff is when we've made it, when we're doing great, when we're successful and that's to be, you know, observed and celebrated. And I disagree. I think the best part, the part of life that is really to be studied and where the opportunity lies is in the transitions. Okay. Those of you who raised your hand that said you're a senior and you're about to make a transition, you are flexing a muscle. You are in the transitions. You sophomores, you have a couple of years to kind of relax and, and absorb, and you're in a different mode of opportunity. But you seniors, you're in a place of transition. And when you're in a place of transition, that is where the magic happens. For me, it was, I had, I took a step back and I said, what do I really want to do? Where do I really want to be? And the answer was, I've always thought about creating a television show around my passion for food. I believe a restaurant, you know, where you go as your favorite restaurant speaks to who you are. So every one of you in that room is from a different part of this country. If I asked you where your favorite restaurant is, you're going to have a fun story. You know, maybe you might take me back to your hometown. Maybe you might take me to a city that you've traveled to. Maybe you'd take me somewhere in South Bend. I don't know. But wherever you take me, there's a story behind it and a reason. And that why speaks to who you are. So I use that premise 
to create a show called To Dine For. And To Dine For is nationwide on PBS. It's also streaming on Amazon Prime. It's also on a cable channel called Create TV. And it's most recently also on Pluto. In the show, I travel with guests to their absolute favorite restaurant to hear the story of what they created. Every guest on the program has something in common, and that is they have created something through their own heart, hustle, and imagination. And what they have created, they are using to better the world. So my very first episode of To Dine For, which was almost six years ago, was with Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, hearing his absolute epic journey of creating Starbucks and if you don't know the story, if you're in business or have any interest in hearing business stories, I think Howard Schultz's story is really like the gold standard. Not only is he exemplary when it comes to leadership, exemplary when it comes to passion and dedication and a student of culture, willing a company to success through his own heart and hustle. It's the story of Howard Schultz. I was extremely lucky to get him as my first episode of the program. You can watch it on Amazon Prime in the archives if you ever want to see the very first episode. And it was after that interview in Seattle, Washington, he took me to a Middle Eastern restaurant called Mom Noon that he absolutely loves and loves the family and and had a real distinct reason as to why he loved that restaurant. It was on the plane home from Seattle that I realized that I was onto something that Going to someone's favorite restaurant was a wonderful way to tell their story, was a great storytelling vehicle, and would would be a difference maker. The show would be different because of that. And that was sort of the beginning. We are now working on our sixth season of the program, which I cannot believe. This season is about dreamers. How do you make a dream come true? What are the obstacles to making a dream come true? The psychology of bringing a dream to life. And we are interviewing people that all fall under the category of great visionaries and great dreamers. So that is what I'm doing over the next year is working on season six of the program. In addition to To Dine For, the television show, we also have To Dine For, the podcast. So I don't know if you, show of hands, how many people listen to podcasts? Okay, so quite a few of you. So this is on Apple Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. To Dine For the Podcast is a continuation, but all of the interviews are done. Most of the interviews are done virtually, not all of them, where we talk to people about, about their favorite restaurant, and then we dive into what they've created. And these are business leaders, entrepreneurs, creatives, visionaries to hear their story of success. So I have a 50-episode podcast a year and then a 10-episode show on public television that I work on. That is my job. You know, I have a, I created a production company called Shot Put Media Group to produce the podcast and the television show. We also do storytelling for business to CEOs, C-suite leaders, and corporate training about how to tell a great story. How do you pitch yourself successfully? How do you own a room? How do you communicate in a way that is effective and impactful? Um, So I do do one-on-one coaching and teaching. That is also part of my business model. But the, the bulk of what I do is to bring this show to life, to, I like to say, excavate some of the secrets of these real visionaries and to hear First of all, why are they doing what they're doing and how are they doing what they're doing and what is the purpose behind it? And success leaves clues. 
every successful person has a blueprint of how they did it. And if you study enough of them, you start to see patterns. So part of where I am after six years of doing this program is I am in pattern recognition mode of how do you pitch, how do you create, and how do you bring visions to life? It is work that I find endlessly fascinating. I hope you can tell just by how I describe this, I throw my whole heart and soul into what I do. To me, it is the very essence of everything that I have worked for and on with my, you know, 20 plus year career in journalism. I wouldn't want to be doing anything else in my life than what I'm doing right now. I really absolutely love it. My hope and prayer for you is that you find something that is equally motivating, something that really sets your heart on fire and that you wake up every day really excited to begin the day. That is the goal of a professional career, in my opinion, okay? Other people have different opinions. Everyone has a different view of what work should look like. And so, you know, you you got to always take different people's viewpoints in and you may not feel the same way, but my hope for you is that you truly love what you do. So that, I'm going to put a pin on that because I feel like it's a nice way for you to understand kind of what I'm all about without going on and on and on and and see if maybe you have a couple of questions and that can guide the rest of our conversation. So can let's I'll open it up to the floor first. I mean of course I already have questions but it's most important that you ask what's on your mind. So yeah, we can start us off. You spoke about how like when when you got let go it was kind of very abrupt and you didn't see anything coming like from that. What was the transition period like? after getting such bad news and probably feeling pretty upset about that to ultimately creating your own company and what was kind of like your mindset and and was there any like self-motivating factors or anything like that that you focused on or what kind of drove you to ultimately say you know what i'm not going to let this like keep me down i'm going to create something new by myself fantastic question it's a really amazing question because it really gets to sort of the psychology of success no matter who you are you're going to have failures you're going to have setbacks If you play football, you know about this. You're going to have losses, right? If you, no matter what you try to do in life, there are going to be things that you don't understand, things that set you back, things that get you angry, uh, a sense of injustice. And I would say, looking back, yes, it was a very difficult time. But what I was able to do that really worked for me is that I was able to sort of harness a sense of I did not want my story to end like this, right? I had worked so hard in journalism for it to just fizzle out. And I was motivated by great positivity and hope and a little bit of anger. I think anger can be a wonderful, if you harness anger correctly, you can do great things in this world because it's such a motivator. And for me, I said to myself, You know, there is a, I believe it's a a question they ask at Google, and I'm going to pose it to you because I think it's so didactic and so important. It is, they ask Google employees to close their eyes and imagine the best day they've ever had at work, right? Like where they just killed it, where they just did, you know, just really successful and feel amazing. Now open your eyes what did you just do? Did you just pitch a VC? Did you just make a sale? Did you just do open heart surgery and save a person's life? What did you do that led to that feeling that you had the best day of work ever? I use that 
And I heard about that question and I don't know how much of a role it played in what I ended up doing, but I think it's so fantastic. And for me, it really helped to, to really hone what precisely I wanted to do. I could have gone back into being a local news anchor in another city. I certainly had other opportunities to do that. But for me, I wanted to doing something on my own, doing something where I was using every bit of, of my life force, my, my creativity, my what I, what I would learn were business skills and communication skills, and to do it in service to what I think is so important, which is telling the stories of visionaries and how they made things happen. That to me was so exciting. So I would say the psychology of that moment, while it was very difficult for me, and I went through a lot of you know dark nights where I was like, what is going on? Where am I gonna end up here? It led me to push through it to do something that that to me is the ultimate. Right. So I think we you can only determine what the ultimate is for you. And I would never think to yourself, what could I do in a practical way where I'll be successful? That's only going to get you to a level five. But if you ask yourself, what could I do that would feel victorious? That what could I do where I would I know I would be so excited to do this, that it would be so motivating, so compelling that I think it's something that the world needs. If you can get yourself to that level, then you're at a whole different strata of success. And I'm not sure had I not been fired that I ever would have gotten there. So how's that for how failures propel us forward, right? I really think that sometimes the negative things in your life can absolutely bring you to the next level and where you're meant to be. And especially if you adopt that as a mindset. So I hope that answers your question. So I was going through the PBS site for your show and I noticed that you had like an episode with Bethany Hamilton, who I like personally admire. And yeah. I was like, how did you establish a reputation for your venture early on? in order to seek out individuals like Bethany Hamilton to be on your show? First of all, that's a great question as well. So when you are creating a program like this and you are asking guests to be on your program and they are, some of them are stars. You know, we had John Bon Jovi. That's on the podcast this week is John Bon Jovi or Gloria Estefan. When you are asking superstar CEOs like Sarah Blakely of Spanx or Howard Schultz of Starbucks, that's kind of a difficult ask. And so two things have to happen. First of all, you have to provide them with value. They're not going to do anything that doesn't also benefit them in some way. And what I had to offer was a really innovative opportunity to share their story through their favorite restaurant. You don't see that every day on TV. So I was giving them a very unique opportunity to explain who they are, what they're all about in a really fun, engaging, different platform on national TV, public television, okay? So that was the offer. So that's the first thing I would say. You have to have you have to bring something of value to them. Second of all, there's an old expression, nothing succeeds like success. So it was very important in my first season of the program to get really amazing guests, and I did. Jessica Alba of The Honest Company, Jose Andres of, of World Central Kitchen, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, Norman Lear, 
one of the greatest television producers of all time. These are just some of the guests that I was able to get for season one of the program. So what happens is when you, when you already have a track record of success, then people want to be on the program. The number one question most guests will ask is who's been on the program or who else are the other guests? And so it's very important that you have something to show them where they say, yeah, I want to be in that category. I'm a visionary. I'm a dreamer. I definitely fit in. And so for me, it was extremely important to make sure that I had truly outstanding guests on that first season. And that has led to success every season after that. Hi, my name's Lane. I think you talked about a lot about pitching yourself both while still younger and with CBS and sending your tapes all over across the country, but then also more so with your business. So could you speak a little bit more to that? How to pitch effectively and how has that changed alongside your career? So I really never had to pitch myself until I started this show. So as a journalist and as a news anchor, I had to create a reel that showed my talent and my range and then send it off. So it was in sort of a video form. I never pitched myself. I just sent that reel and then, you know, news director would evaluate it and be like, eh, you know, next, or they'd say, okay, maybe we bring her in for an interview. That's really not pitching yourself as much as presenting what you can do, right? So I really had never pitched myself until about six years ago, seven years ago, when I started this program. And I will tell you, I learned so much so much about pitching yourself, presenting yourself. And I would say the number one way to get better is repetition. So before I could create this show, I had to get the funding for this show, which means I had to go out to companies and ask if they would fund this program, if they'd be willing to be a partner in this program and to really sell the idea, to to sell who I am and why me. And then I also had to sell the offering. And so What I learned, I would write down after every pitch meeting, like what went well, what didn't go well, what I could have done better. But first of all, it gets back to the desire and the passion. You have to be passionate about what you are pitching, first of all, and you have to identify what is it about what you're pitching that makes it unique. If there's an opportunity to share a story or an anecdote when you're pitching, it is invaluable. Stories are so much more powerful than facts. I know that sounds crazy because we're a data-driven world. And especially if you're trying to get in front of a VC person or a marketing, they, they, in their mind, they think, I want the facts, I want the facts. But really they don't. They want to be enchanted. They want to see something they've never seen. They want to experience and feel something that they've never felt. So if you can transport somebody into your inner world to make them believe what you believe, to show them what's different, to make them feel like in a way that they've never felt before, okay? that Those are imaginative, creative worlds. That is where you are not just, this is what we're doing and f- fact and data, and this is how many viewers I have, blah, blah, blah. Like that's all important and you've got to get all that in, but that's not going to be the difference maker. People are going to buy you Okay, not necessarily what you're doing, but why you're doing it. So you have to explain why you're doing it. You have to explain why it lights you up and where the value is. So I would say, think about what you're doing in terms of a story and finding a small story that really illustrates what you're doing. And I would also say, practice, practice, practice. And I personally believe 
you know, people try to take emotion out of business, um, emotion out of pitching. And I would say the opposite. I would say put as much emotion into what you're doing as possible. Put everything you have into your pitch because it is going to be the difference maker because most people do not do that. Hi, I'm Caitlin. So something that we're working on that's due on Wednesday is um, like evaluating team members. And also we had a list of skills that are needed for media companies in general. So when you started this company, what did you do yourself and what did you know that you needed to hire like someone for? And would you recommend that in the media business you try and gain as many skills as you possibly can, whether that's like editing for like knowing how to do podcasts or should you kind of outsource that? Like what's the fine line of uh, production and also compiling content for your company? The very first thing I ever had to do was create a pilot for this program. I leaned on my television experience producing and writing and sort of my gut instincts for creating this pilot, but I needed a team right away. I mean, you cannot do anything in television without, you know, a photographer, a sound person, an editor. You cannot do anything without a a series of people. So for me, while I'm sure some companies you can exist by yourself for a while, that, that immediately you need a team. So for me, there wasn't really any decision. I had to hire a crew to shoot the pilot. And then I had to hire an editor who's still with me, John Golner, who's amazing, and to create this pilot. And so for me, it was sort of a, I don't want to belabor this too long because I don't know if this is the right question for me, because personally, I think you know, when you need people who can do things that you can't do, I cannot edit. You've got to do it right away. And I would say, you know, when you when you can identify things that you don't know how to do or you're not good at doing, you should hire as soon as you can. When you were hiring them, you just about to get this question, like what skills were you specifically looking for? Like one of the things we talked about is not just like, oh, this person, I need an editor, but like I need somebody who is skilled in X, Y, Z, programs or activities. So were there particular or an effective communicator or like, what were the skills that you said, okay, this is how I'm going to make the decisions about who to put on my team? You know, I was just looking if someone was good, honestly, like, can I work with them? And, you know, at the very beginning, I wasn't thinking big thoughts. I wasn't even thinking of myself as a company owner. I I honestly wasn't. I wasn't thinking big. I was thinking, let's get the MVP, the minimum viable product out in the world. And that happens to be a pilot for a show. So I looked at it as, you know, in television, we call it, you know, you had to create packages every day, which is like a news story. It's a two minute news story. Okay. And it involves sound. It involves your voice over it. And it involves images, right? I, I produced thousands of packages throughout my career. So when I was thinking of the show, I was thinking this is not a two minute package, this is a 25 minute package. And so for me, I knew how to do that already. I just needed to bring in all of the people, like the like I needed, I, I, in the news world, you only need one photographer to shoot a story. In, in a, the world of a television show, you need a, a production crew, which is like three photographers, a sound person, a gaffer, audio, you need, you need a whole team. So I was looking for that. And I was honestly not thinking about, can I communicate with this person? I was thinking, are they good? Can they do the job? 
And I wish I could say that I put more thought into it than that. I think as you develop and you can become more choosy and you have more money, all of those things can happen. But at the beginning, I was just thinking, can I find someone who can actually get this done? You know, now I have a lot of people who reach out to me who want to work on the show and they reach out to me on LinkedIn and I always take calls with them. And I love to bring in new people, but I have to have a sense that number one, they are going to be good at the job. They can write, they can edit, they can run a production crew. I have to get that sense in their ability. So when I'm thinking about hiring, I'm thinking, are they capable? You know, that is my number one chief concern. Um, I guess I was just wondering, was there anything you did at Notre Dame that kind of like influenced your decision to go from law school to like the newsroom? I had done an internship at WSBT in South Bend. So that definitely, you know, I I, I got a, my feet wet as to what the experience was going to be like. But more than anything, I think it's about trusting your gut. I knew that I didn't like to argue <laughs> and uh, be, going into law probably would not have been the right fit for me. And now that I've gotten older, I know 100% it would have been the absolute wrong fit for me. I would have spent three years. I would have been in debt. I would have had to take a job that I did not like to get myself out of debt. And I would have wasted at least seven to eight years of my life. And there was no turning back. So I think especially when you when you think about maximizing the years you have on this earth and being able to say, I spent a year doing this, but it was wonderful. I would think as you plan your futures, I would say to yourself, like, what are you going to be so excited you walked in the direction of, even if you, it turns out to not work out, right? Like if you have any sense that or excitement towards a specific field and know that that's how you want to spend your time, and that's absolutely what you should be doing. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for spending this time with us, um, for answering questions. Thank you. It's, it's so fun to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For With Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the Podcast, American National, Lavazza, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golmer. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.